from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please turn in your pew Bibles to Zechariah 1, uh, verse 1 through 6, which is found on page 828 in the Old Testament. Listen to God's word. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Bechariah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or heed me, says the Lord. Your ancestors, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your ancestors? So they repented and said, The Lord of hosts has dealt with us according to our ways and deeds, just as he planned to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us continue to hear God's word for you and for me this morning. Hear from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for Jesus in his house. There was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to Jesus' disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with the, with the tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be changed people, different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So we continue now in the second week of our sermon series, Speaking Lent. Our attention turns to the word repentance. And in addition to our text from Zechariah and Luke, I'd also like to offer another story that will provide another perspective, another lens to which 
we might be able to understand and incorporate this big word of repentance in this Lenten season in our faith journey. And I want to tell a story that is uh, one of the stories of Jesus. It's one of the most popular stories he has ever told. It's a story that I assume that many of you have heard before. So I want to tell it in a little different way. I want to tell it through the creative imagination of a pastor named Eugene Peterson. Reverend Peterson has recently died, and, and he wrote a paraphrase of the New Testament that many of you, I imagine, have heard of before. It's called The Message. And so I'd like to tell this story through that lens with uh, Eugene Peterson's words, how he tells this ancient 2,000-year-old story of Jesus. I'd like to tell this story in four distinct parts. A distant country, return, reunion, and repatriation. A distant country, return, reunion, and repatriation. So listen again to the story of Jesus as told by Eugene Peterson, a story that has great meaning for us today, even as it did back then, a story of a man and his two sons. Part one, a distant country. There was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags and left for a distant country. There, undisciplined and dissipated, he wasted everything he had. After he had gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through that country, and he began to hurt. He signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his fields to slop the pigs. He was so hungry. He would have eaten the corn cobs in the pig slop, but no one would give him any. This story starts with a picture, I think, of the nature and the character of sin. Sin was the word that got our attention last week. Sin, we said, is estrangement. Sin is division. Sin is separation. Sin is being far from home. It's like setting out for a distant country where you have no people, where you have no friends, where you've run out of all of your resources, and it's where no one will give you any help. This is the plight of the sinner. Estrangement from God, estrangement from our neighbor, even estrangement from ourselves. This is, as we said last week, the human predicament. It is universal according to the theology of Paul. This is our problem, this estrangement. We've wandered far from home. We've wandered far from God. We have walked away from our brothers and our sisters, our neighbors. We've walked away with clenched fists and bitter hearts as we've turned our back on our core identity as children in the household of God. 
sinners make their way into a distant country. And in that distant country, we do become estranged from God, but we also become estranged from one another. We become estranged from the other's humanity, and when we become estranged from their humanity, in some way we become estranged from our own humanity, our own sense of self. And so we withhold uh, empathy, we withhold compassion, we withhold empathy and compassion from the other, and we withhold empathy and compassion from ourselves. Uh, we even withhold, follow me here, we even withhold the pig slop believing that if we allow the other to eat even the corn cobs from the slop, that the next thing we'll know is they're going to want the food on our dining room table, and they can't have any of that. And so we withhold it all. No one would give him anything to eat. Let me be clear with one of my convictions that this estrangement this reality of estrangement inevitably leads to violence. It leads to violence of all kinds, uh, spiritual violence, emotional violence, psychological violence. The kind of violence is not just perpetrated by, by physical terrorism. We do see that kind of violence, and we've seen it again in New Zealand this past week at two mosques. And of all places, Christ Church, New Zealand. Estrangement leads to violence of all kinds. We are all guilty of it. We all perpetuate it. This is not just for those we see on the news. This is for everybody. Paul said last week that we are estranged. We're estranged from God. We're estranged from our neighbor. We're estranged from ourselves in that distant country, in that distant country, the reality of estrangement is all around. Part two, return. He was so hungry, he would have eaten the corn cobs and the pig slop, but no one would give him any. That brought him to his senses. He said, all those farmhands working for my father sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going back to my father. I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. He got right up and went home to his father. The Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. And while this word does not appear in the story that I'm telling you this morning, the act of metanoia actually does. It's in full view. It's embodied in the son's getting up and going home. It's embodied in the son's return to his father. In the New Testament context, metanoia, when it's used uh, it refers to this idea and this notion of turning around. To turn from one thing and to face another. Or literally to return to something. In this case, it means to turn from estrangement 
And it means to turn toward homecoming. It means to face a different direction. It means to face a different purpose. It means to face a different priority. It means to face a different goal. Repentance here means to return. To return. In the early 1980s, a Minnesota radio station reported a very odd story about a stolen car in California. Cars being stolen isn't all that odd, but the lengths at which the police went to recover that car and to contact the thief was actually quite absurd. In fact, the police, at the bequest of the owner of the car, put out a radio ad. This is pre-cell phones. They put out a radio ad calling for the thief who stole this particular car out of this particular driveway in this particular neighborhood to turn around and come right back. And it wasn't because they wanted the car back in as much as it was because on the front seat of the car, there were crackers. And those crackers were laced with poison. And the owner of the car was going to take them the next morning to his office that seemed to have this rat problem. And so now the police weren't so much interested in the car as much as they were interested in preventing the man from eating the poison and dying. They were interested in saving his life. In a similar way, the son's return to the father is a return to life. It's not a return to judgment. It's not a return to bring all that he had squandered back to his father. It's not a return to condemnation. It's actually going to be a return to food and welcome. It's going to be a return to sustenance. It's a return to the place where his humanity will not only be recognized, but his humanity will be dignified. There's a difference. The son knows where his salvation will come. It's going to come with a return to his father's house, a return to his father. Part three, reunion. When he was still a long way off, his father saw him, his heart pounding. He ran out, embraced him and kissed him. The son started his rehearsed speech. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. 14th century mystic Julian of Norwich once said this, Our Lord does not want his servants to despair because they have fallen often and have fallen grievously. For our falling, says Julian, for our falling does not hinder God in loving us. Our falling does not hinder God in loving us Friends, the son's estrangement, his wandering off in a far country, does not hinder the father from moving toward him. And here is a moment of grace. It's the moment where the son is far off and the father runs toward him. This is a moment of grace where he embraces him 
and welcomes him back home. While he was still a long way off, he ran out. You see, the instinct of the father, it's long been believed by Christians who have read this text and read this story time and time again. It's well been believed and assumed that the father represents God that God is on the move toward us, that God is on the move toward humanity. And Jesus actually spells this out in Luke chapter 5 as he explains that Jesus is on the move toward sinners. He's not on the move away from sinners. He's on the move toward sinners. He's not trying to get out of sinners' company. He's trying to have dinner with them. He's trying to be in relationship with them. He's moving toward them. And in the same way, the prophet Zechariah, we, we see a similar movement of God. Uh, just for context, the prophet of Zechariah writes during a time where the, the Jewish exiles are returning home from captivity in Babylon. They're headed back to Judah. And this is good news indeed, but Judah is a shell of itself. And so as they get back home, they realize, they look around, there's not much to be optimistic about. And here comes, the Ze here comes Zechariah with a prophecy of hope, with a word from God that says, return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. This double movement where, where we're turning and returning to God and, and God is moving toward us, this is what creates reunion with the divine and reunion with those we are estranged with. And so we have these three wonderful images, the Father running after the Son, Jesus running after sinners, and God running and returning to God's people to show us that repentance, the fruit of repentance, is actually reunion. Reunion with God and reunion with one another. Part four. Repatriation. The son started his speech, Father, I, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father wasn't listening. One of the great lines of the story, the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain-fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son here, he was given up for dead, but, but now he's alive. Given up for lost. And now he's found. And they began to have a party. To repatriate, as many of you know, means to come back to one's country of origin. It assumes that this citizen was living somewhere else, living in a distant country. And they have now come back home. I've been thinking about repatriation from the, from the Zechariah text and from the perspective of the, the Jewish exiles who are returning home. For they not only are going to take up residency in their country of origin, repatriation is much more than residency. Repatriation is about receiving all the benefits. It's about receiving all the privileges. It's about living into the responsibilities of one's citizenship again. So they were living in a pagan society, in a pagan land. Their traditions were beginning to fade away. The law of the Lord was not being read. And to repatriate themselves mean, means to not only take up residency, but also take up what belongs to their household, 
those habits and practices and those worldviews. And I think in, in, a, in, a, in a large measure, the lost son is being repatriated to his father's house. I think that's what's happening. That's what's going on. And the symbolism of this repatriation are his clothes and the family jewels as he is dressed now with these clothes and as he wears these jewels, he looks like he belongs to his father's house because he does. Because he does. This is his home. This is his citizenship. And this is the way he's going to live. He's going to live in the way of his father. Several years ago, a teenager from the community I was, I was serving outside of Philadelphia, he got into a little bit of trouble with the law. I was the youth pastor at the time. This kid had a huge heart. I had a ton of gifts, but he regularly made less than stellar decisions, hence a court appearance. So I told him I would accompany him to the appearance. He let me know that it was 2.30 on a weekday afternoon. At 2.25, I'd shown up. Will is his name, and his father were waiting anxiously because their attorney was nowhere in sight. At 2.40, still with no lawyer present, Will was finally called into the courtroom. It was obvious that the judge was upset that his attorney had not been on time. And so the judge instructed Will to have a seat at one of the tables. He then asked who we were. Will said, this is my father and this is my youth pastor. The judge asked the police officer to begin to review the the, the, tri, the, the charges, rather, and, and the judge quickly uh, reviewed the possible sentences for those crimes. And the judge wanted to proceed, obviously, but he wanted to wait for the lawyer, so he, he held the case for a little bit with great impatience. About 2.55, still with no lawyer in sight, the judge looked up from his paper and pen as he was doing some, some clerical work at the bench. He looked at me and he said, what church are you from anyway? I told him the church name and immediately he pushed his papers aside and he said, I know that church. I know that church. I, I used to work for a company that cleaned that church. I worked for a guy named Harry McGurk. Did you know him? And as soon as the name Harry McGurk left the judge's lips, Will and his father started to cry. I mean like a deep, manly cry. And Will's father said to the judge, Your Honor, Harry McGurk is Will's grandfather, my father-in-law. Harry had died a few years earlier, and he was the one out of all of the family members that was most often compared with Will. People would say, Will, you have the heart of your grandfather. Will, you've got the heart of, uh, you've got the faith, rather, of your grandfather. You've got the spirit and the, and the winsome presence of your, of your grandfather. And thus, all the tears began to make sense to the judge, and the judge went on. He began to talk about Harry McGurk, about how his work ethic was unmatched, about how his kindness and his love were unparalleled. He spoke as if this man was his own father. And as the judge was speaking, I began to see tears roll down his face as well. He was overcome with emotion as he was talking about this fondly remembered mentor. 
One minute until three. One minute until three, the attorney finally shows up. He comes in. He sees the defendant crying. He sees his father crying. He sees the judge crying. He sees the youth pastor crying. He even sees, I think, the police officer crying and wonders what is going on. The judge sits him down immediately and doesn't even speak to him. He says, Will, if you have the same blood running in you as Harry McGurk, you shouldn't be here. You have a future that is much bigger and brighter than the decisions you're making. He says, you have a past and a legacy that's so much more important than the way in which you're making choices right now in your life. You are the grandson of Harry McGurk. That means something. The judge eventually gave him a fine and required him to begin a substance abuse program. He also required him to do 40 hours of community service. 20 hours he would have to spend cleaning the church. The judge said, I'm giving you this task so that you will remember who you are and where you've come from. He was asking him, I think, to metaphorically wear the clothes and the jewelry of his grandfather's house to wear that legacy. And I think in the same way, what it means to repent is to wear the clothes of Christ, to wear his compassion, to wear his justice, to wear his truth and his empathy, his forgiveness and his love. We wear Christ's legacy too. Friends, because of sin, because of estrangement, we have to repent. We have to return to God. We have to reunite with God. We have to reunite with our neighbors. We have to repatriate ourselves as citizens in the kingdom of God. So I close with these four questions. Where in your life do you need to repent? Where do you need a return to God? Where do you need a reunion with God or perhaps a reunion with someone you're estranged with as an act of faithfulness and witness to the grace of God that we await in this season? Where in, you, in your life do you need to act more like a member of God's household, where you need to wear the clothing of God's house, where you need to wear the family jewels, where you need to claim your citizenship in the kingdom of God. In the season of Lent, may we return, may we reunite, may we repatriate ourselves for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen.